Let me begin by thanking the Society for inviting me to this wonderful event. I'm always happy to see you and uh, to discuss Ibn Arabi's legacy and uh, uh, the, develop, the personal developments and events uh, that happened between the, our last meeting and uh, our present meeting. Uh, my wife and I enjoyed the, uh, the environment, the very welcoming environment of South California and Santa Barbara in particular. I would like to thank all the organizers for, uh, for their excellent job they have done as an administrator. <laughs> I know how difficult it is and how many unexpected events happen that shouldn't have happened, but uh, I know uh, given all these vicissitudes of organizational activities, you've done a wonderful job and I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of my wife also for giving us the opportunity to be with you and to enjoy the, uh, the weather. You could have done something about the sun, but... <laughs> but uh, I won't hold it against you. <laughs> uh, oh, I forgot to thank the Center for Middle East Studies, which is not represented here, but I, in particular Gary Manikuchi, an old friend of mine whom I met in the former Soviet Union and uh, we struck up a remarkable friendship that continues up to the present day. So the paper is based on my, um, I would say, close reading of some passages from the Futuhat. You cannot cover the whole, the whole range of uh, various possibilities that this uh, text offers, as you know well, and even better than I. Therefore, I do not pretend that this paper to be exhaustive or uh, and uh, it should be uh, combined with the observations that were made by the speakers during the, um, these two days that we have spent in this room. Now I will read uh, my paper, which will probably take 35 minutes. Um, and I, being uh, a professor, <laughs> provided some key terms that I will be, uh, Arabic terms that I will be using in my presentation and to facilitate the comprehension of the uh, Arabic words for those who have no background in Arabic, I spell them out and maybe I'll add a few more as we go. Ibn Arabi's concept of uh, responsibility is elusive to say the least. One thing is obvious to me, uh, he definitely didn't expect his readers to treat it in isolation from the other key uh, topics of his world, uh, world outlook, not to mention dedicate a special a conference to it. In the Futuhat, the notion of responsibility appears in a variety of guises and contexts, some of which I will examine in my presentation. Upon reviewing some abstract theological discussions of responsibility in the text of the Futuhat, I will address Ibn Arabi's personal responsibility and the ways in, we, in which it was shaped by his dual identity as scholar and mystic. The Arabic terms that Ibn Arabi uses to address responsibilities, um, the notion of responsibility, vary. The closest he comes to our modern understanding of the meaning of responsibility is probably the concept of taklif. 
uh, the first term on my list of uh, terms. This term denotes the sum total of religious obligations that God has imposed on his servants. Throughout the text of the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi often refers to his fellow believers as Mukallafun. This is the singular, Mukallafun plural. Namely, those burdened with divine command or those for whom the divine law is prescribed. During uh, the believer's earthly life, this prescription is absolute and irrevocable. It comes to an end only at, at his death, when all veils are lifted and the true essences of things are revealed to his bewildered gaze. While the word taklif does highlight some important aspects of our modern idea of responsibility, that is, I quote from uh, the Webster Dictionary, the ability to distinguish between right and wrong, to think and act rationally, and hence be accountable for one's behavior. It carries a variety of additional connotations, namely that the passive receptivity, uh, that of passive receptivity of divine commands that may appear to be entirely arbitrary, capricious, and irrational. Yet, as divine commands, they have to be implemented under any circumstances by the mukallif, uh, who is, as it were, saddled with the responsibility to fulfill God's demands no matter what. The other semantic cluster pertaining to responsibility is associated in the Futuhat with the Arabic term talaba, to demand, or in the third form, to demand back and to reclaim, and there, uh, it's and Sa'ala and its derivatives such as Mas'ul, uh, the responsible one. According to Ibn Arabi, Sa'ala means to ask, to demand, to claim. According to Ibn Arabi, the whole universe is held responsible, Tuliba, the third form of the word, by God who, uh, by God to strictly observe that which is his due, Hukuk Allah namely God's rights vis-à-vis -vis his creatures. In the same way as the great governor, Al-Imam, Al-Kabir, he says, the, the great governor, is answerable, uh, Mas'ul, to his superiors for assuring the proper morals, behavior, and well-being of his subjects. Any human individual is answerable to God for the actions of his members and faculties. In other words, the servant of God must keep all his members and faculties away from those acts that contradict the divine law. If the servant of God fails to restrain his members and faculties from illegal actions, he forfeits his status as a true believer and is abandoned by God in the same way as the ruler is demoted and disgraced if he fails to maintain the proper social and moral order in his domain. So each, each of us is actually a, an imam responsible for the, for the actions and the movements of our, the members of our body, the body being the kingdom or the domain. To avoid divine punishment, the servant should carefully weigh all his acts and thoughts on the scale of divine law, al-mizan, scale in Arabic, 
striking a salutary equilibrium between his personal dispositions and the divine commands. In this process of weighing his behavior, the believer can count on divine guidance, for he is incapable of maintaining, maintaining the proper balance on his own. That is, a person just without divine guidance is unable to achieve the salutary balance that is required for salvation. This is not to say that man is a helpless puppet in the hands of God. His life is a continual test of his ability to remain faithful to the spirit and the letter of the divine law and to carry the burden of taklif and the responsibilities imposed on him by God. This test consists of the believer's never-ending struggle to bring his actions and passions in line with the divine commands, especially when the former are at odds with the latter. In this constant internal struggle against his passions and drives, the servant is continually tempted by the blandishment of a shaitan, the Satan, who seeks to make him uh, put his personal priorities above, above those of God's or about the rights of God that should be observed by his um, servants. This ongoing internal battle determines man's status in the hereafter. Even when man errs in his interpretation of a certain divine command, God, who wants to reward him for his refusal to blindly follow his instincts, will still absolve him due to his attempts to wait his actions on the scale of the divine law. The servant of God who has successfully renounced all his personal drives and natural appetites will receive the ultimate award. God will grant, grant him the right guidance in perpetuity, overriding all his passions and drives of the moment. Put differently, God will make divine guidance, the very essence of the servant's soul, thereby protecting him from any error. In an illuminating passage, Ibn Arabi traces the origin of taklif to the first human beings, Adam and Eve, as well as to Iblis, Iblis the devil, from the Greek diabolis. Uh, the former two, that is Adam and Eve, are commanded not to approach the tree of knowledge, whereas the latter was commanded to pay obeisance to the first man. In Ibn Arabi's interpretation, the original taklif had two different modes, prohibition and command, amr. Ibn Arabi posits that these uh, primeval orders were stronger than all of those revealed later, because God announced them directly to the individuals concerned. Therefore, God's punishment for disobedience was swift and permanent in both cases. Iblis was cast down from heavens forever, and Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise, never to return. All later prohibitions and commands were less direct and therefore less final. They were dictated by God to his prophets and messengers or communicated to them through angels. The secondary nature of these two later types of divine prohibitions and commands, that is why the prophets or uh, why the angels through the prophets to the, to the humankind, um, 
explains why the punishment of mankind for failure to observe them has been delayed by God until the day of judgment. He contrasts the immediacy of the first punishment to the delay um, in, in the case of the indirect commands of God that, or the, the, man, the commands that were communicated through uh, human agents, that is, messengers and the prophets or angels. In certain cases, however, God can arbitrarily suspend his commands or grant the prophet's intercession or request for intercession on behalf of some members of his community, contrary to his promise to always punish the disobedient. Elaborating on the theme of disobedience, Ibn Arabi draws a fascinating distinction between prohibition, which he describes as the order pertaining to non-existence, Amrun Adamiyun, Amrun Adamiyun, Adam being non-existence, and, and God, God's positive command, which he calls the order pertaining to existence, Amrun Wujudiyun, means existence of being or finding of God, depending on the context. The former demands, that is the order pertaining to non-existence, demands that an action not be performed, while the latter, on the contrary, requires that the subject of the command undertake a certain action. While the human race, by their very nature, are passive recipients of divine volition, and, in the final account, God is their sole mover, inaction is easier for them than action. In fact, Ibn Arabi pronounces action to be out of character with human beings. By embarking on a certain activity, whether commendable or otherwise, God's servants are overstepping the boundaries circumscribed for them by their primordial nature, which Ibn Arabi sees as being innately passive. This difference, according to Ibn Arabi, determines the severer punishment for failure to obey God's positive commands as opposed to the lighter punishment entailed by disobeying God's prohibitions which are orders pertaining to non-existence. Much of Ibn Arabi's discourse on responsibility revolves around the issue of theodicy in general and the provenance and character of human actions in particular. If God is omnipotent creator of human beings, to what extent is he also the maker of their acts? If we grant that he creates all acts, be they good or evil, how can um, he hold humans responsible for the actions they are not free to choose or perform? If we suggest that humans choose their actions from a number of possible alternatives, what will happen to divine omnipotence? In other words, we are dealing here with the age-old and inscrutable theological problem of human will versus divine predestination. By Ibn Arabi's time, this problem had found two principal solutions that were associated with the two major schools of Islamic theology, the Mu'tazilites um, and the Asharites. The Mu'tazilites attributed actions to human beings albeit via a divine intervention of sorts, and held men fully responsible for their deeds and misdeeds. 
They also argued that divine actions and divine justice can be rationally justified in so far as God cannot be anything other but a rational entity. The Asherites argued that all actions are created directly by God, whereupon humans appropriate or perform them. In so far as they are appropriators and performers of, performers of divinely ordained actions, human beings are accountable before God. Unlike the Mutazilites, Asher, the Asherites viewed God's actions as absolutely arbitrary and not subject to any extraneous rationale or logic, at least as these are usually understood by human thinkers. In the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi repeatedly discusses both theories and brings out their strengths and weaknesses. I will spare you, the, spare the, you the details of these discussions, especially since they have received an exhaustive treatment in Chittik's excellent book, Sufi Path of Knowledge. I would like to, uh, to limit myself to a few general comments and hopefully brief comments. Ibn Arabi duly acknowledges the legitimacy of both theories as human attempts to come to terms with the inscrutable working of the divine will. In the long run, however, he finds both of them wanting because they rest on a fallible rational speculation mother, rather than a direct supersensory insight al-kashf into the nature of empirical phenomena. This insight al-kashf is characteristic exclusively of his fellow Sufi Gnostics, al-arifun, the knowers or Gnostics whom he also calls God's folk, Ahlul Haq or Ahlullah, and or the realizers of the ultimate truth or truths, Al Muhaqqiqun, the truth realizers or verifiers as uh, Chittik translates this term. The notion of, of Al Kashf, which literally means supersensory unveiling is absolutely central to Ibn Arabi's mystical epistemology. His whole career is dedicated to advancing or elevation of cash as the privileged cognitive mode and it is hardly surprising given that his entire life was devoted to the defense and justification of a contemplative uh, Sufism of the Gnostic type. He presents Al-Kashf as the principal epistemological tool of Sufi Gnosticism as well as its distinctive hallmark. The overriding importance of Al-Kashf is thrown into sharp relief in, the many, in many passages of the Futuhat. Here are some typical examples. Quote, Know, O my brother, that the knowledge of God's folk, Ahlullah, is derived from Kashf. Its shape is that of faith itself. Anything that faith accepts as being true is precisely what the cash of God's folk rests upon. All of it is nothing but truth, for it was communicated to us by none other than the Prophet himself. May God bless and greet him. And he derived it from a veridical cash. In another passage, Ibn Arabi reiterates the same idea in slightly different terms. I have alerted you, he says, 
to this important affair so that you understand that the ideas of rationalist scholars, al-Ukala, that is, those possessed of ratio, of intelligence, so that you understand where the ideas of rationalist scholars, al-Ukala, come from. It has now become clear to you that sound knowledge cannot be derived from any human idea or from the conclusions reached by speculative scholars on the basis of their ideas. For the only true knowledge is infused by God into the heart of the seeker. It is but a divine light that God bestows upon whoever he wishes, be it an angel, a messenger, prophet, saint, or ordinary believer. He who does not have kash has no knowledge." Unquote. It is only natural that Ibn Arabi has recourse to this critical notion in his attempt to resolve the problem of free will versus divine predestination. Since his, his cash shows him all acts and phenomena to be ultimately from and by God, he considers their conventional marking as evil, quote-unquote, or good, quote-unquote, to be contingent and accidental. However, he acknowledges that, for the overwhelming majority of ordinary believers, the division of actions into good and bad is absolute, because they believe that it will determine their status in the hereafter. Ibn Arabi sees things in a totally different light, because he considers himself to have gone beyond the imperatives and conventionalities of human existence and the external dispensation associated with it. Moreover, he explicitly claims to have crossed the all-important line that separates temporal existence from the eternal life to come. Here is how Chittik describes Ibn Arabi's argument to this effect. I quote, In the next world, once the person has left the arena of the law, he will see that all his evil acts were in fact in relation to God through, uh, though not in relation to him, good acts. This, in Ibn Arabi's view, is one of the meanings of the Quranic statement, God will change their evil deeds into good deeds, Quran 25, Surah 25, verses, verse 70, unquote. Chittik's paraphrase of Ibn Arabi's position is corroborated by the Sheikh's own words. I quote, What in fact takes place is that one divine name prescribes the law for another divine name within the locus of a created human being. Unquote. In this scheme of things, the servant's own will to act is absolutely irrelevant. In fact, it simply doesn't exist since all actions spring from the internal interplay of God's names and commands within a contingent locus called God's servant. Elsewhere, Ibn Arabi drives this message home by saying, I quote, There is nothing here for us except our readiness to accept the actions that are attributed to us by God in the empirical world, unquote. Another quote, My Kash therefore says, you have nothing to do with this, that is, with your actions. In short, the only true and real actor is none other than God himself, and everything that happens takes place within him and by him and through him. This is a very consequential statement insofar as 
uh, it can be interpreted by some immature minds as licensed to do as they please without paying any attention to the revealed law. In my study of the fate of Ibn Arabi's intellectual legacy, which uh, John uh, demonstrated here, I have shown that this indeed was occasionally the case. He refers, for instance, uh, I, I mention the situation or the episode in Yemen when Ibn Arabi's ideas were misappropriated by a group of people who fornicated with a wife of one of their own, saying that they all are one, we are all one on account of divine unity of being. Uh, so um, this is just an extreme example, but uh, you can see that the detrimental social consequences of the statements uh, such as I just mentioned, that all these contingencies are irrelevant and everything in the end goes back to God and God is the true actor behind everything that is seen as uh, being external actions of individuals, people. No wonder that in several passages Ibn Arabi tries to counterbalance his strictly predestinarian stance by allowing at least for at least a modicum of responsibility on the, par on the part of human beings before their Lord. In an illuminating passage from volume 3 of the Futuhad, the, the old Bulak edition, he shows how a potential fornicator, I'm sorry, again, the same, uh, the, uh, I'm using the fornicator as an example, but that's what uh, Ibn Arabi used. He shows how a potential fornicator is in irresistibly drawn to the object of his desire by God who simultaneously creates in him the desire to perform the act of fornication as well as the physical ability to do so. Yet, in the last moment, the would-be fornicator abstains from plunging headlong into uh, a grave sin as he remembers the capital punishment that awaits him, which in Islam is death by stoning, at least as far as adults are concerned. Naturally, this moment of recall is also created in him by God, who thereby puts the fornicator in an impossible position of simultaneously design, desiring fornication and abhorring his desire to perform it. Thus, on the face of it, the would-be sinner is saved by his own dread of the consequences of his act, although in the final account his actions were still predetermined by God from all eternity. Naturally, Ibn Arabi and his fellow Gnostics from, God's, from among God's folk, Ahlullah, are not subject to such difficult choices and tests. They have renounced the, all their drives and desires for the sake of God. As a result, his worship has become part and parcel of their very nature and everyday existence. Although they continue to live in this world, they no longer belong to it. Their true abode is what Ibn Arabi calls God's wide earth, and it was mentioned and discussed here by um, Cecilia in great detail. They reside in this supernatural and supersensory land because they have already died to this world in an effort to expedite the face-to-face -face encounter with God that, was, that is promised to them in many passages, passages from the Quran. I quote, We know, says Ibn Arabi, that the meeting with God can happen only after death. We have realized the meaning of death and striven to achieve it already in this present life of ours. So we have died 
while at the same time remaining alive in regard to our actions, our movements, and our desires. And when death appears to us in this life of ours, we shall still be alive, for we have met God and he has met us." Unquote. As a reward for this life after death, Ibn Arabi and his fellow Gnostics have been granted a vision of the true realities of all things and phenomena which are concealed from, the, from ordinary mortals by the deceptive outward appearances of the things, of all things. This vision, vision can only take place in God's wide land, or vast land, Ardullah al-Wasya, where the true realities of things are revealed without their empirical bodies, which in the world of sense perceptions obscure their genuine essences. Roaming the vast expanses of this land, which has neither a beginning nor an end, are those who Ibn Arabi calls the people of divine providence. Each of them has his own domain over which he has full control without, however, infringing upon the domains of his neighbors. Since Ibn Arabi is one of this land's inhabitants, he is no longer deceived by the external appearances of things and phenomena. In particular, he knows beyond any doubt that all actions, be they good and evil, are predetermined and created by God and within God without any intermediaries. As God's creations, they are all essentially good and virtuous. However, this realization cannot mislead the Gnostic into wrongdoing because the pure and absolute worship of God, al-Ubudiyah al-Mahda, has become his true nature. In other words, as God's intimate friend, the Gnostic has become incapable of committing any sinful action. Obviously, this exalted epistemological and moral stance eludes the overwhelming majority of human beings who are subject to the contingencies of the revealed law. They are unaware of their status as helpless puppets in the hands of God, who has long predetermined their destinies and charted the courses of their lives. Protected by their ignorance from flouting God's commands, they strive the best they can to please him in the hopes of securing their salvation in the hereafter. To such men and women, Ibn Arabi addresses his lengthy admonitions al-wasaya at the end of the Futuhat. Unlike many chapters of this uh, basically esoteric work, that are expressly directed at his peers and soulmates, this section is addressed to the average Muslim with little or no propensity to mystical insights or flights of fantasy. In the course of more than 100 pages in a very fine print, the Bulak edition, Ibn Arabi seeks to inculcate in his reader the rules of proper behavior toward God and his fellow Muslims. Be virtuous, he says, do good works, observe strictly the rules imposed upon you by God, perform supererogatory acts of piety, Mind your speech. In particular, avoid slander and backbiting, biting, even if your words are true. Uh, forgive people their misdeeds. Be patient in the face of afflictions. Practice humility. Maintain ritual purity and be considerate of your fellow Muslim. Remember God often. Don't uh, hold God's friends, al-awliya, in high esteem, and so forth and so on for many, many pages. 
The overwhelming majority of this admonition are the staple fare of mainstream Sunnism and can be found in practically every didactic manual of the age. One wonders what all this recommendation should have meant from the viewpoint, from the viewpoint of the final curtain and why did the Sheikh spill so much ink detailing them in, this, in his magnum opus. I'll try to answer this question. Here I'm, I have come to conclusions which are pretty lengthy, but I hope you will be able to provide some feedback which I will in, later in, incorporate into the final version of this paper. So what do we make um, of all these contradictions? I would like to suggest that in the Futuhat we are dealing with several different levels and realms of responsibility that pertain to different categories of people. Let's outline at least some of them. The first and the most simple type of responsibility is confined to the ignorant populace, who are incapable of reflection over their face and their destiny in the hereafter blind to their real existential situation and the deeper structures of the cosmos, they're destined to slavishly follow the recommendations of exoteric scholars, ulama ar-rusum, ulama ar-rusum, rusum means basically the external uh, writings, who derive it from a correct, if temporarily and circumstantially contingent understanding of the Muslim scriptures and the exemplary behavior of the greatest Muslim scholars of the past. The responsibility of the masses is to stay within the limits defined to them by their learned pastors. Any intellectual inquiry that might, may take them beyond this narrow confines should be strongly discouraged. Slightly above the esoteric scholars and their flock stand speculative theologians, al-Ukala, oh, I already had it, or Ahl-Nazar. In their quest for the truth, they have hit upon some sound and valuable ideas, but are still incapable of placing them into a larger picture and of seeing the tr their true implications in this world and the next nor are they able to understand the constant fluctuations of the modes of God's will in regard to his creation. The notion of responsibility upheld by such scholars rests on their often conflicting misunderstanding of the provenance of human actions and of their relationship with the workings of the ever-changing divine will. While one theological faction sees human action as basically products of their human actors, their opponents trace them back to God, leaving almost no room for human discretion. In the end, Ibn Arabi dismisses both doctrines as falling short of the goal and being confined to this world only. These theories will be invalidated in the veridical or botific vision that awaits mankind at the end of time. To the third group of thinkers belong those whom Ibn Arabi identifies as individuals whom God has granted a true insight into the cosmic situation and the role of man in it. This group includes both the knowers of God or Gnostics al-Arifun Billah and the ones who have attained the truth al-Muhaqqikun both terms are wrong. 
while the former, that is, the Gnostics, although being head and shoulders above the esoteric scholars and speculative theologians, are yet to achieve perfection, the latter, that is, al-Muhaqqikun, have already attained it and entered God's vast land, where things and phenomena of the empirical world reveal to them their genuine and immutable essences. Seen from the vantage point of God's uh, folk, the responsibility of the overwhelming majority of the faithful is limited to this world only. When the final curtains will be lifted before human eyes at the end of time, this responsibility will be invalidated and supplanted by new existential arrangements and dispensations. However, these new realities are already familiar to the perfected Gnostics who inhabit, it, who inhabit God's vast land, since this land prefigures the shape of things to come. It is to this category uh, Ibn Arabi, along with, uh, with an elect few, claims to belong. It is against this background that one should see what I consider to be Ibn Arabi's personal realm of responsibility, that is, one that flows from his objective status as a member of his society. Throughout his entire life, Ibn Arabi acted as a staunch advocate and of and spokesman for an extremely esoteric version of Sufism that I, for lack of a better term, have defined as Sufi Gnosticism. I recognize that it is an imperfect term, but uh, I use it as a shorthand. His entire intellectual legacy is explicitly and implicitly dedicated to the defense of its epistemological and ontological premises, which he considered to be the ultimate and incontrovertible truth inspired to him directly by God. In view of the ultimate overriding nature of this truth, all other religious doctrines that were circulating in his intellectual and cultural milieu were but pale and inadequate reflection of the sublime divine mysteries that he claimed to have direct access to. In the short term, they may be of some value inasmuch as they restrain the ignorant populace from engaging in excesses and immorality. However, in, the, in and of themselves, they are flawed and imperfect. Moreover, they will prove false at the end of time when the true realities of things will be unveiled by God for the benefit of his servants. At that point, God's mercy will encompass all of his creatures, sinners and righteous alike, as promised by the famous hadith that Ibn Arabi was so fond of citing in his work. Ibn Arabi considered this sublime picture to be too overwhelming and potentially detrimental to the generality of ordinary believers. Therefore, he took great care to protect it from profane eyes by couching it in the long technical discourses, enigmatic allusions, and puzzling allegorical exegesis which permeate his magnum opus. Yet, as an advocate of Sufi Gnosticism, he had no choice. He was actually compelled to disclose this socially dangerous truth obtained through his kashf in order to demonstrate their superiority to the other cognitive modes and theological doctrines of the age. Simultaneously, he was debunking and spurning the teachings of both traditionalist scholars and speculative theologians as one-sided 
and temporary slash temporal. At the same time, on the social level, Ibn Arabi remained a member of the learned class, the ulama. As such, he was under obligation to conceal his daring insights from the uninitiated in an effort to preserve the fragile moral and social fabric of his community, which might unravel should his daring teachings be misinterpreted by some irresponsible members of his community. The tantalizing tension between concealment and disclosure that shapes Ibn Arabi's discussion of responsibility in the Futuhat is a direct result of his dual identity as both scholar and mystic and his loyalties to the disparate, if not incompatible, strains of Islamic thought. I would argue, however, that in the end, Ibn Arabi the Gnostic prevails over Ibn Arabi the Canon. For better or worse, he dares to raise the curtain, protecting God's most ultimate mystery, and to show his readers that all human actions and natural phenomena take place by and within the all-encompassing divine reality, al-Haqq. God's creatures are but the passive and contingent arenas of the dialogues between God's own names and attributes. Since from this perspective, the creatures have no role at all in the acts they ostensibly create and are held responsible for. My narrative has come full circle. What began as a discussion of Ibn Arabi's concept of human responsibility has led me to the paradoxical realization that in the final analysis for Ibn Arabi there was none, at least in the conventional meaning of this word. What we see is Ibn Arabi's self-imposed responsibility to communicate his daring insights into the structure of the universe and the designs of its creator to his fellow Sufi Gnostics. That these insights often contradict our empirical experiences, the received wisdom of the traditionalist scholars and the theodicies of the specular theologians didn't divert him from this principal objective. Thank you.